We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. James Brown never met a fan he didn't like. I mean, this was a guy who would get out of a car at Times Square. This this is a true story, and it's, it's, it's not in my book, but it's a true story. He and Muhammad Ali had done a talk show together and shared a limo back to wherever they were going, hotel or whatever the hell. This is in the 80s. James and Muhammad Ali. Yeah. They had done Tom Snyder's Tomorrow Show, and after the show, they shared a car. And they were on either Broadway or 7th Avenue, I don't know which, and... Um, pulled up to 42nd Street, and James looked at Ali and said, if we got out of this car, I'd I'd draw more people than you would. And they kind of challenged each other. And they popped out of the car and just started standing there, signing autographs, and, and of course, they both got mobbed. Who won? Brownwood. Brown won? He got mobbed more than Ali? I'm not so sure. I think it was Ali Frazier. It's a toss-up. Alan Leeds has had the most amazing professional life. He's managed James Brown, Prince, D'Angelo, and Chris Rock. The man's got stories for days. He just dropped a book telling about his time with James Brown called There Was a Time, The Chitlin Circuit, James Brown, and Me, which details all the amazing James Brown stories you could want. The man was on the front row for one of the most amazing careers in music history. Here you'll get half of my interview with Alan, which is him diving into his time with James Brown. But if you go to patreon.com slash show, you'll get Alan and me talking about Prince, Chris Rock, D'Angelo, and more. Plus interviews with Malcolm Gladwell, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Joy Bryant, and more. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash show. And now... Alan Leeds on Torre Show. So you've written this great book about James Brown, which is just a tip of your extraordinary life. Your professional life has just been one amazing person after another. But I want to start with James. What was the real... James Brown like? Because you were with him day in, day out in the 60s. And part of what you talk about in the book is like, what y'all saw outside is not necessarily the the Mr. Brown (laughs) that we had to deal with on a day-to-day basis. No question. Um, I I think my motivation for writing the book, because there's been bios, there's been an autobiography, there's been quite a few James Brown books, Um, some worth reading, some not. 
my whole goal was to try to let people know the James Brown that I knew, who doesn't really show up in most things that are written about him. Right. Um, like most legends, in his later years, he became a bit of a caricature of sorts. His his important creative years were behind him, but he continued to perform all over the world regularly to huge audiences. And anyone from the 80s on knows that caricature. But the James Brown that I met as a teenager in the 60s was, you know, barely 30 years old. And he was a vital, creative, serious artist, but also a, want to say, revolutionary businessman because in the whole soul music era, he probably had more control over his career than anybody. Um, you know, you think of Ray Charles and Sam Cooke, who are two artists who did have a modicum of control. But James Brown had almost 100% control. I mean, is that, when you say he was a revolutionary businessman, you mean the way that he got that control or the fact that he had that control? The fact that he had the control. The way he had it, beside his innate ambition and determination, which is legendarily second to none, was that his manager, from whom he learned a lot, is a gentleman named Ben Bart, was an older guy when Brown became associated with him, and he passed away in 1968, leaving Brown to manage himself as opposed to wanting to get a replacement. That's number one. Number two, he was with a record company in Cincinnati called King Records, another legendary outfit that throughout the, from the late 40s into the early 60s was a very successful label in the R&B world, also the country, country music world, and had tons of, of best-selling artists. But by the time Brown really kicked in to crossover mode with Papa's Got a Brand New Bag circa 1965, King Records' best days were behind them, and they basically were relying on Brown to keep the label alive. He was the only contemporary artist left on the label. It was still all current and making hit records. So he had an enormous influence on the label, which eventually gave him complete autonomy to record where and when he wanted to, with whom he wanted to, to produce whatever other artists he wanted to, to supervise engineering and mixing, to take control of his album covers, which was important because album covers in that era, I mean, there's famous stories of having white women on the cover of yep. soul albums and yep. so on, yep. um, and take control over release dates, not to mention promotion. He had his own promotion people rather than rely on King or independence. So he had literally complete control over every aspect of his career which was completely unique, um, unique in pop music in general, not just black music. So that sets the stage for part of what we love so much about James Brown, that his music was so powerful and it grows. I think you marked four sonic eras of James's career. Is that about right? Yeah, I think that's, 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 that's right. Um, 
there was the early James Brown, which was actually James Brown and the Famous Flames. It was a vocal group that got signed. It was five singers and a guitar player. Um, James occasionally played drums. Uh, Bobby Bird played piano. And they were basically a Southern doo-wop group, very much inspired by the Five Royales and, and some other groups that were a little more Southern than the doo-wop that was successful in places like New York, Philly, and Chicago, but still a doo-wop group. And his first two, three years of recordings, including the hits of uh, Please, Please, Please and mm-hmm. Try Me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, were basically out of that genre. Mm-hmm. Then the flames kind of gradually faded into the background because it was just uh, organic because here was this charismatic, dynamic performer up front. And it got to the point where people were coming out to see James Branton and really didn't care who else was on the stage. And um, that's when he became the soul singer that we knew in the early 60s. Um, Ray Charles had pretty much single-handedly introduced gospel into secular music, into R&B. And that set the stage for the soul music era, arguably 59 through 66, 67, when Southern soul singers really ruled the roost. And that begot people like Sam and Dave and Otis Redding and Johnny Taylor, and the list goes on and on. James Brown was the king of that circuit. You listen to his first big album, keeping in mind this was a singles-driven era, which his first big album was Live at the Apollo, Volume 1, which sold like a single. I mean, this actually was a number one album on the pop charts, and an album that got no airplay except on black radio, where sometimes they play the whole side of an album because it was just right. that that popular. And... If you listen to that album, there's there's two up-tempo songs, the opening and the closing, and everything else is is gospel blues. There's a 10-minute version of Lost Someone that's arguably the template for soul singing mm-hmm. and all the devices and everything else that, that everybody else used for the next decade came out of Brown's performance on that album. But there's still a, a, a mellow gospel blues inspired James Brown there. Yes. And then and, in and it was, was the mid to late sixties, the tempo goes up, right? The, 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 there's much more percussion. There's much more horns. There's much more bass and drums. And- exactly. Which, which, which eventually led to what we call the invention of funk, which kind of started with a single he had in 64 called out of sight. Then came Papa's Got a Brand New Bag in 1965. All of these were up-tempo dance songs. And in early 1967, he recorded Cold Sweat, which most people look at as the first genuine full-blooded funk record. These are some and, of the records that continue uh, to have life, that people still listen to, that people totally. still think about as like the epic zenith of James Brown sonically. Sure. Why did he go into that? realm sonically i think it was it was really more organic than a plan i think okay. it was just a case of of by the time i got to know him which was in 1965 uh, one of the first things that i was impressed with was that he was always up to date with whatever the kids were doing on the dance floor 
He was very tuned in and and would would take tracks, for example, if he had a new song that he was excited about. Um, he might speed up the tempo of the recording, record it at a natural tempo, and then decide to increase it a little bit, just, just speed up the tape just a hair because it would fit whatever the current dance was that the kids were doing when he planned to release the record. So he was very tuned into that. But I think artistically it was really just an evolution. Um, you know, he had pretty much taken the gospel soul style of singing to its apex. There wasn't much to do but repeat himself at that point. And I think he was just stimulated and challenged to do something different. He could then, because of his success, he could afford a a better quality of musicians who certainly contributed a lot. Um, Band leaders like Pee Wee Ellis and Fred Wesley, soloists like Maceo Parker, most importantly, drummers like Clyde Stubblefield, Burnett was the funky drummer, uh, John Jabot Starks, Melvin Parker. I mean, he had a, 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 a... an encyclopedia of great drummers. It's important to recognize none of which played the same. I mean, each one had a distinctive style. If you were the least bit James Brown savvy, you could put on a new James Brown record and within 10 seconds identify which of the drummers is on that track just because they were so stylistically um, unique. Um, And all of those guys combined were just thinking, like, what do we do with this music so it's not boring and it's not derivative? And they just were all of the same attitude. And and James was the mastermind. He was the chemist. And and he was just like, we're going to do stuff that nobody else is doing. And I think it was a case, I think the driving factor was he was smart enough to realize that recording artists come and go. Those that are associated with a style or a trend go quicker. When the trend dies, which is inevitable, the artist dies. So if he was going to be the king of soul, he was going to make himself so unique that anybody who wanted soul had to go to James Brown. And wherever soul music was going to go, he was going to be the one to take it. Or if he fell behind, he was going to be the one to to catch up and move forward. Um, he just refused to sound like anybody else or be influenced by anybody else. I mean, but he is influenced by the people behind him. And one of the things you talk about is when Bootsy Collins comes into the band, right? And Bootsy's a kid when he brings him in, but he can clearly recognize this guy's a monster. Sure. When he brings him in, then the band and the sound changes again. Sure. Yeah. No, he was the, the, the James Brown bands were very important um, they weren't just backup musicians because they they defined whatever style he was doing at any given time was really defined by the group of musicians he had. And his genius was not so much as an instrumentalist. I mean, he could play organ, but he was no threat to Jimmy Smith. Um, he could play drums, he thought, but all his drummers made fun of him behind his back. But he had this <laughs> genius of recognizing the strengths of all the musicians in the band. And he would write and arrange music geared to their strengths and stay away from their weaknesses. And the perfect illustration of that is how when the bands changed, as you mentioned, when Bootsy Collins and his brother and a bunch of young guys became the band in March of 1970, there was a, a 
was well known amongst James Brown fans that there was an upheaval in his famous 60s band, Maceo Parker, Pee Wee Ellis, Jimmy Nolan, Clyde Stubblefield, all these guys. And um, they gave him an ultimatum about salaries and work conditions and so on and so on. He called their bluff and basically let them all go and brought in this young group of untrained kids from Cincinnati, which included Bootsy Collins. Now, the 60s band was known for their horn riffs. They were innovative. They were great horn players, so their intonation and everything was, like, way above them. They were all guys who had jazz pedigrees, and quite a few of them actually went on to play with people like Count Basie and so on and Sarah Vaughan, and they were guys that wanted to be jazz musicians and, and had the skill sets. But here comes Bootsy Collins, where you've got a great rhythm section, Bootsy and his brother Catfish on guitar. But you've got some very untrained uh, bar band level horn players. So Brown senses that, and he's like, okay, you know, for all these years, my, my, the horns were always a significant part of my records. Well, these guys aren't going to cut that. I can't beat that old horn section, so let's focus on the rhythm section. So the first record he makes with the new band is Sex Machine. Instead of a Maceo Parker saxophone break, there's a keyboard break, and the bass and the guitar mixed up higher than they usually were in James Brown records, and the horn parts are so forgettable you don't even miss them. Um, and that's just a case of something that if you listen to his records all the way back to when he first started recording with his own musicians in the late 50s, when he had his first real road band, um, the records were always geared to the strengths of that group of musicians. And um, that that really was his genius in, in recognizing what he had, knowing how to stay away from their weaknesses and just make everything sound first rate. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. 
Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. If you love Torrey's show and you miss the days of me talking about politics on MSNBC, and really, who doesn't, then check out my other podcast, Democracy-ish, where I sit with Danielle Moody-Mills and argue and strategize about the 2020 race from a Black and progressive perspective. This pandemic requires you to have a level of compassion that I don't believe that white people in America have ever had. Right? right. You can find Democracy-ish wherever podcasts are streamed. All right, back to Torre show. There's a moment in uh, the James Brown movie, right, where Chadwick Boseman plays sure. James uh, before Black Panther. And this moment stands out to me where he's he's rehearsing the band and he's saying like, you know, what is a horn? It's ultimately a drum. Right. What is this ultimately a drum? All the instruments are ultimately drums. Is that the way that he looked at it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, when, when you start looking at, at his so-called funk era, starting in the, you know, 60, well, let's say 67 with Cold Sweat, um, it was very much a focus on, I mean, all the parts were percussive by nature. And with the horns, it was never something just mellow. It was like the, the intonation, the attack of the horn section had to be percussive. It had to be bang. So when the horns come in to play their part, and it might be a simple riff, but instead of da-da-da, which is what you might hear on a Stax Vault record or a Motown record, um, and that's not meant to put down their horn players. They, too, had great horn players, just a different approach. But with Brown, it was da-da-da. It, it had to be percussive. And he realized that that also carried with it an excitement level that translated to the stage. So it was very much like when he was making a record, he was already visualizing how will this song work on stage? How will it rise the emotion of the audience? What's going to take the show to the next level? It was all one and the same in his head. Mm. There's a great story in this early on in James's career. You said, you know, like, you know, in small towns, they, they didn't have television. They don't always know what the artists look like. And you talk about a Little Richard show where Little Richard couldn't do the gig. 
And so they had young James Brown before he was way before he was a star. He get up and and be Little Richard was Little. I mean that exactly. It's, it's, it's crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I I talk in the book a little bit about that because the book isn't just about James Brown. I'd like to think that somebody who's just interested in black music of the '60s in general could find some stuff in this book that would be worth their while, even if they're not a James Brown fan. And one of those sections is talking about how how common, sadly so, how common that was that kind of fake artist there was a promoter i was i went to junior high and high school in richmond virginia where i got into radio which led to meeting james brown but there was a a a pretty strong local soul music scene in in the richmond area major harris came out of there uh, a couple of the Gamble Huff writers came out of there. Uh, Wawa Watson came out of there. All these guys played in local groups in Richmond during the time I was there. And to make a long story short, there were a couple of local promoters that would take some of the local groups that just played local clubs and would would get a bus, paint on the bus the Drifters or the Manhattans or whatever group was hot at that time, take this group out of one of the clubs in Richmond, throw them in the bus and take them out to the boondocks somewhere in Western Virginia or West Virginia or even parts of Maryland or the Carolinas. And um, and they would perform as the Drifters or the Manhattans. And they would go out and do this like several times a year. I mean, it was mind-blowing to me, but it was like... The, the, People the, didn't know. No, 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 no. There and, was very and, little television I and mean, the black artists weren't getting on TV at all. And, at all. You know, if you were really, really lucky, you'd get on to Clark. Mm-hmm. And if you were super lucky, you got on Ed Sullivan maybe once. But that was it for TV. And if you didn't have Jet Magazine, you had no idea what they looked like. Right. You know, particularly if you lived in the boondocks. I mean, if you lived in Richmond, that's a real city. They got the Richmond Afro-American newspaper. And, right. You know, you're right. not going to get away with that in Richmond. Right. But you can go to, you go to Danville, Virginia, <laughs> Chesterfield, Virginia, Goochland County, Virginia. So it works. I mean, a lot of this book is about you being a tour manager and moving with James Brown from city to city year after year. For those of us who never got to see him perform on stage, I think I saw him perform once on stage like later in his life, but what was, what made him so great on the stage? He just had a knack of knowing what would excite an audience. I mean, obviously he had a skill set that's a no brainer. I mean, he was a, miraculous dancer who again did did things that nobody else was doing or could do i mean he was the michael jackson of his era when it came to footwork he had elements of the the vaudevillian tap dancers the stepbrothers and and you know people like that that he had seen as a kid so he had some of that but he also had his own imagination and skill set and the fact is he could hoof. I mean, it was just really that simple. But he also, everything he did was geared to arousing an audience, to get house, as we say, to get approval, to get kids to jump up and scream. And the same way Michael Jackson would moonwalk and tear the house down, um, James Brown would do the mashed potatoes and tear the house down and be sliding across the stage on one leg with the other leg up in the air. And, you know, who else was doing that? I mean, Otis Redding couldn't dance. Great singer, made fabulous records, but, you know, 
He was a doofus on stage. God love him. Um, <laughs> Sam Cooke, on the other hand, he looked so good, he didn't have to do anything. Um, Jackie Wilson would get on the ground and take his shirt off and have the girls take the rest of his clothes off. And that would be the third song of his set. And that's all he had to do. So everybody had their way of doing it. But James was like, I'm not going to take my clothes off. I'm not going to be Jackie Wilson. I'm not as pretty as Sam Cooke, so I can't just sit there and, and you know, and pose. Um, and he just had, a, had an innate sense of what would work. And I think it probably goes back to the fact that this was a guy, a seventh grade dropout in heavily Jim Crow, Augusta, Georgia, from a broken family. His mother left him when he was, what, eight, nine years old. His father dumped him off on an aunt who was who ran a brothel. And, um, you know, that's where he was raised. And he used to go out in the streets of Augusta and, and entertain the soldiers from Fort Gordon tap dancing or, or what they used to call buck dancing and whatever the hell it was he was doing. So he already had an education on, on what am I going to do with my feet that makes these soldiers throw an extra buck in the can? He just had that sense of what works. And, um, you know, as he became more sophisticated about entertainment and learned how to really work a stage, he, he, he just took that attitude with him. So everything was designed toward arousing an audience. And he always said, if I leave the stage and I'm not soaked with sweat, then I didn't do my job. And that, that, was, that was his goal. It was kind of like and the, 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 the idea of the cape at the end of the act and please, 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 and on his knees screaming and his, his, one of the famous planes putting a cape over his back and walking him off the stage and he throws the cape off because he's got more to give and so on. It, it was almost inspired by, you, you would look at that show and you would think you were watching Joe Lewis or Muhammad Ali or something. And, and it was, you know, James had, had actually boxed a little bit in Augusta. So he had that background, and I think that was part of it is like, okay, I came to conquer the stage. The stage is my opponent. This is a boxing match. The stage and the audience are the opponent, and I'm not leaving the stage until I've knocked them out. Mm. And whatever it takes to knock them out, I'm going to do that. Knowing and working with James, of course, led to you knowing all sorts of amazing people. You talk about friends with Miles Davis or no friendly friendly you knew Miles Davis you had an opportunity to talk to him several times sure but what was the real Miles like oh that's a that's a whole other book um Quincy Troop wrote it but it's it's a book yeah <laughs> um Miles was I mean there was a I mean they were as different as night and day Miles was brought up by a middle-class family in the Midwest his father was doctor, if, if doctor, and if not wealthy, certainly solidly middle class. Um, Miles went to Berkeley. He dropped out very quickly because he'd rather play in Forty Second Street with Charlie Parker. But but you know he was you know it, he wasn't a seventh grade dropout in Augusta, Georgia, mm -hmm. and uh, was certainly way more sophisticated than James Brown was in their youth and so on, but. They're certainly very parallel in terms of their determination to be separate and apart from their genre and to take the music, take their art into places that nobody else had taken it before. And there's, I mean, just as we can say, James Brown went through four creative phases 
and outlasted every one of the soul singers by years. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrivemarket.com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamin a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi Secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from Tinderfoot TV Campside Media and iHeart Podcasts Radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. In years, um, Miles did the same thing. I mean, he came out of bebop. And, you know, his career, you can break into at least three or four categories. Absolutely. And no one of them sounded like the other. You wouldn't even, you know, I could take four Miles Davis records sure. from different eras and play them for somebody who wasn't familiar, and they would never dream it's the same artist. No, no Kind of Blue would not seem Bitches Brew, the same yeah, exactly. person, maybe exactly. two, like, what are you talking about? Right. Exactly. Um, I mean, Miles seems to be wrapped up in this complex inner monologue of strangeness and complexity. And I think we understand why James Brown needed attention. Mm -hmm. Um, But Miles seems to be a whole other thing going on inside him. That was the, that was the surface miles. He needed attention too. Oh, of course. You know, of course they're they're remarkably similar in there. But where James is like, you know, I'm going to stay and give you everything I have. Miles is turning his back famously. Right. Right. On the audience. Like, like, I I don't need you motherfuckers. And like you do, but you don't. Right. Yeah. But, but he also knew that turning his back made everybody watching that much closer. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, I don't want you to see me. Now you tell me you don't want me to see you. That arouses my curiosity. Now I'm really going to watch you. Mm. Okay. And I think that was part of it. And it made him stand out. Um, I mean, he always said, it's just like, hey, I'm, I'm playing for the, from my band and I want to see the band. And there might've been, you know, 10% of it. Um, but they were very similar in, in many, many, many ways. Um, Miles was a character, but, uh, I met Miles because of Prince, uh-huh. and um, Prince was not too different from Brown and Miles either in some ways. How? And one of his things was he didn't like giving out his phone number. Now you would think he would give it to Miles Davis for God's sake, 
No. So moms would have to call me to get to Prince. So I would get these voicemails. Ellen, tell that little purple motherfucker to call me. And, you know, it's, it's like, okay. Now, I had been, I mean, I'm a jazz head too, and I'd been a Miles Davis fanatic since, I think, probably since, maybe not kind of blue. That was before I got into jazz. I had to go back to that. But, but since, certainly since A Silent Way, before Bitches Brew, and, um, you know, the idea that this guy's calling me, that was more remarkable than James Brown or Prince, because it was just like, Miles Davis? Wow. Yeah. It was... Prince is like, you, you, you managed and tour managed for Prince for many, many years. Um, Prince is like James in that, you know, the, 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 the early life is very tumultuous. And, you know, there's a break in his relationship with his mother. And he grows up feeling a deep need for attention. Mm -hmm. um, what, what was the real Prince like? Um, it was hard to determine sometimes what the real Prince was. And every time I thought I had it nailed, he would say or do something that would send me back to the woodshed to rethink it. Um, he was, of course, famously shy. But if he knew you, he was anything but shy. Mm. I mean, he could be the life of the party as long as it was his party. And he had control over who was there, what the environment was. He would be very much the life of the party. But if he went to somebody else's party, he was going to be the wallflower. And he was going to stand back and be quiet. And... You know, with, with with him, it was about controlling his environment. I mean, that's what Paisley Park was about. It's like, let's have everything under one roof so I don't have to mix in the public. James Brown, on the other hand, never met a fan he didn't like. I mean, this was a guy who would get out of a car at Times Square. This this is a true story. and It's not in my book, but it's a true story. He and Muhammad Ali had done a talk show together and shared a limo back to wherever they were going, hotel or whatever the hell. This is in the 80s. James and Muhammad Ali. Yeah. They had done Tom Snyder's Tomorrow Show. And after the show, they shared a car. And they were on either Broadway or 7th Avenue, I don't know which, and um, pulled up to 42nd Street. And James looked at Ali and said, and this, this has been, story's been told by several people who were, I guess, in the car. I think Raymond Sharpton might have been in the car. But at any rate, famous story that's passed down that one of the others said, said if we got out of this car, I'd, I'd draw more people than you would. And they kind of challenged each other. And they popped out of the car and just started standing there, signing autographs. And, and of course, they both got mobbed. Um, but James Brown would do that with or without Ali. I mean, he was he was a guy who, who won. Brown won. Brown won. He got mobbed more than Ali. I'm not so sure. I think it was Ali Frazier. It's a toss up. You know? Okay. Okay. You know, okay. It's, okay. It's, 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 you know. Um, but I mean, two really arguably amongst the top five most recognizable African Americans of that era. Sure. So, you know, so but let, probably let, a draw. Let's but. talk about Prince for a minute. One of the things that some of the folks have been talking to me about is there was multiple personalities. Right. 
revolution folks talk about like four distinct personalities, right? Uh, is this are you? Have you? Are you? You've surely you've heard this. Did you? Did you? Did you discern the same sort of four? They talk about Steve and Shaft and Fred Sanford and Marilyn Monroe. Like, is that your? Yeah, un- but I'm not so sure I would describe it as four different personalities. I mean, pick a number: three, four, five. Who knows? Because these so-called personalities were really just about his moods. And don't we all have mood swings? His just were much more pronounced. And his moods might depend on the music he made that day or didn't make. It might depend on how the show went last night. It might just depend on how he felt when he woke up that morning. Um, It might depend on something that none of us would ever know that was just purely personal and secret to him that would motivate a mood um because you know yeah there was there was i mean he was a comedian he was hysterically funny you know this he had a great sense of humor Mm -hmm. dripping with sarcasm but funny Mm -hmm. um he could be extremely generous and supportive and sensitive he could also be extremely hard-edged and rude um, I think the difference was not so much, I don't think it was so much about personalities. I mean, yeah, he's a Gemini, so already says personalities. I think it really was just that he was the kind of person, and maybe this is where he's similar to Miles, where he isn't going to employ political correctness or make any attempt to even his moods. Whereas you and I might say, boy, I'm in a bad mood today, but I shouldn't take it out on my wife, and I'm going to try to control it. Thanks so much to Alan for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, and Gerville Calais. Join us over at patreon.com slash show to get an extra episode every Friday only for Patreon subscribers. And of course, to get more from me and Alan right now talking about Prince and much more. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash 
all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy. And we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy. And I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer. Because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.